The investigation into the high school massacre Parkland is... high school massacre. At least 14 dead, 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting. That includes a suspected gunman. Coming soon, Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. We will discuss the whys, the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon, and please subscribe to Active Shooter. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Tonight, I'm bringing you the story of Robert Hansen, hunter of women, and the most notorious of all of Alaska's serial killers. Enjoy! Robert Hansen Baker Bob The Butcher Baker The hunter would come to be known by many names throughout the world, but before his many crimes were discovered, he was known simply as a loving husband, a devoted father, a shrewd businessman, and a friendly face that could be seen at church every Sunday. Beneath the many masks he wore lurked a depraved mind and evil soul, and only a few unlucky people would ever see his true nature. And for all but one of these women, his would be the last face they would ever see. Now close your eyes for a moment and imagine this. You're in the snowy wilderness of Alaska. You're blindfolded. You're naked. And you're more afraid than you've ever been. And you can hear the footsteps of the hunter crunching through the snow. And you know that he's closing in on you. An unknown number of women would end their lives this way, in a state of unimaginable terror, and blindly running into the forest, even though they knew there was no escape. Long before he became the hunter, he was a small, timid boy with red hair, a stutter, and terrible acne, all of which caused him to be mercilessly teased by his classmates and shunned by girls. He had been born in Iowa in 1939, 15 years after the publication of The Most Dangerous Game, a short story which would later be often compared to Hansen and his method of murder. Hansen began life with many things going against him. Besides his physical appearance and speech impediment, both of which caused him immense shame, he was born into an incredibly religious family with a strict disciplinarian father who showed him no affection. He would, however, teach him to be a baker, and this would end up becoming Hansen's profession. Like many other serial killers, Hansen developed a love of guns and hunting was a favorite pastime. Also like many other serial killers, 
He would dabble in the military, but ultimately not make it very long there. He also had firebug tendencies, and just after marrying his teenage bride in 1960, he was arrested for burning down a building. He would spend 20 months in prison, and his wife would divorce him while he was in there. This arson was not just a crime of youthful stupidity. His criminal life would continue, and he would be caught for stealing numerous times before finally leaving Iowa. He got married again a few years later to a young woman named Darla, and in 1967, he and his wife decided to relocate to Alaska. They chose Alaska due to his love of the wilderness and hunting, and of course, like many who come here, he wanted to make a fresh start and live in a community where no one knew of his criminal past. Once in Alaska, he tried to ignore his criminal urges, but was unable to do so for very long. Despite early successes of being able to start his own bakery and purchase a plane, he continued his escalation of crimes during the 70s and into the 80s. He had actually even gotten some of the money to start his bakery through nefarious means. He had reported a break-in at his house and filed a claim with his insurance company for $13,000 of personal items. In actuality, he had hidden the items and staged a break-in merely to get the insurance money. But this would not be found out for many years. In the early 70s, he was arrested for sexual assault, attempted sexual assault, and larceny. For this last charge, he was sentenced to five years in prison, but it was overturned on appeal. For all of these offenses, he would serve less than a year in prison. During that brief time, he was diagnosed as bipolar and was compelled to take lithium, but he immediately stopped taking the medication as soon as he was released from prison. During these years, he was becoming more and more successful. His business was growing. He had a bakery downtown. He and his wife had two children. And every Sunday, they went to church as a family. They appeared to be the picture-perfect embodiment of the American dream. He went hunting regularly and had become an excellent marksman over the years and had actually won awards for it. Around the same time, he began to rape women. He would go downtown and pick up a sex worker and make a date, offering them money for something in exchange. But then as soon as he had them under his control, he would threaten them with a gun until they complied. It wouldn't be long before the rape would escalate into something so much worse. The 1970s in Anchorage were a wild time. Downtown was essentially a nonstop party for years. The Alaska Pipeline Project was in full swing, and many men were coming from all over to work on it. It was excellent money, and in their downtime, they had a lot of time to kill and a lot of money to spend. Because of this, many sex workers relocated to Alaska for a short time to make some big money before moving on. Because of the transient nature of their lives, it was often hard to tell whether a sex worker had actually gone missing or if she had just left state. In fact, during this time, with so many women seeming to vanish off the streets, many were reported missing only to be found alive and well in another state later. It was essentially a perfect hunting ground for a serial killer, 
especially one looking for victims who might not be reported missing right away. At that time, downtown Anchorage was packed with bars and strip clubs. There was nightly a stream of customers heading into these various businesses. It would have been really hard to remember the specific man you had last seen your friend with before they went missing, especially with the face as ordinary looking as Hansen's. As an adult, he was still small in stature, wore glasses, and basically looked like a clean-cut nerd. His one remarkable feature were the acne scars that had followed him into adulthood. During the time period from 1971 to 1983, around 20 local exotic dancers and sex workers went missing from Anchorage. Some of the women's disappearances had similarities. There were several who had been remembered by their friends saying they were off to meet a man for a date and were never seen again. Some of them disappeared after going to meet a man for a lunch date in the middle of the day. And a few said that a man had offered them money for a photo shoot before they too disappeared. The first body would not be found until July of 1980 when construction workers found a badly decomposed body in a shallow grave buried near Klutna Lake, which is a recreational area about 45 minutes north of Anchorage. Sadly, this first found victim was too decomposed and would never be identified. She is still known simply as a Klutna Annie. That same month, the body of Joanne Messina was found in a gravel pit in the Knick area, which is about 30 miles north of Anchorage. She had been a 24-year-old exotic dancer and it was unknown how long she had been missing. In September 1982, two off-duty police officers were fishing in the Knick River and they found the body of Sherry Morrow, age 23. She had been a local exotic dancer who had gone missing almost exactly one year prior to her body being found. In this case, the killer had left shell cartridges nearby, which revealed she had been shot by a 223 Ruger Mini 14 rifle, a gun often used by big game hunters. Almost exactly one year later, the body of 17-year-old topless dancer Paula Goulding was found in a similar location. These two bodies were found in very similar circumstances as well. They had both been shot by the same type of gun, there were shell cartridges left near Golding as well, and disturbingly, it was apparent they had been murdered while nude and redressed after death. But with so little evidence being found with the bodies, and most of the bodies being quite decomposed, there wasn't much for investigators to go on until June of 1983. Backing up a little to a few months prior to the discovery of Paula's body, June of 1983, early morning. A truck driver is driving down the road and he's startled when he sees a young, barely dressed woman running directly at his truck, frantically waving at him to stop. As he was pulling over to help her, he saw a man running off in the opposite direction. Once the woman was safe and able to speak with the police, she had a terrifying story to tell. Her name was Cindy Paulson and she was a 17-year-old sex worker. She explained that she had been downtown when she had met a man who offered to take her on a date. He was completely unremarkable other than his acne-scarred cheeks and extremely bad stutter. Once they were in his car together and in a more secluded area, he had pulled a gun on her and handcuffed her. 
and he drove her to his house, where he kept her in the basement for hours. He handcuffed her to a beam on the ceiling and spent hours torturing and raping her. He then told her he wanted to fly her out to his cabin for more of the same, and if she complied, he would let her go home. Cindy was streetwise enough to realize that if she got on the plane with him, there was a good chance she would never make it back to Anchorage. They drove out to Merrowfield, which is a small airfield near downtown Anchorage, and he led her over to his Piper Super Cub airplane. For those who don't know much about planes, this is a type of very small plane that can only seat a few people, and it only weighs about 800 pounds. It is somewhat common for the wealthier Alaska residents to own this type of plane for the purposes of pleasure flying and also to reach remote areas to go hunting. While Hansen was momentarily distracted readying the plane for departure, Cindy gathered her courage and made a break for it. She was barely dressed and was barefoot, but luckily, even though it was very early in the morning, it was summer, so it wasn't that dark out, and she could see a truck coming down the road. She made a mad dash towards it, and she could hear Hansen, not far behind her, telling her to stop, bitch. When she made it to the police station, she was able to describe for the police exactly where Hansen lived and even the interior of his house, mostly the basement where she had been for so long. She mostly remembered the walls, which were covered with various mounted animal heads, which were extremely creepy. She also identified his plane at Merrill Field. They easily figured out who the owner was and tracked him down for questioning. When Hansen was being interviewed, he was cool as a cucumber. He didn't seem nervous at all. He explained that he'd spent the previous evening hanging out at his house with a few friends because his wife and children were off on vacation in Europe. He said that Sandy was probably trying to extort him for money or something since he was a prominent businessman and she was just a sex worker. He was the kind of guy that viewed women in black and white terms. They were either a good girl, like his wife Darla, or bad girls, like the sex workers who were only there to satisfy him and whom he viewed as disposable. He also thought that raping a sex worker shouldn't even be considered rape. After they were done questioning him, they did not have much to go on, and at this point, it was essentially the word of a teenage sex worker against the word of a respected family man with a popular business who wasn't acting guilty or nervous at all. They did check his alibi, and his two friends confirmed they had been with him at his house for most of the evening before. Once Sydney declined to take a polygraph regarding the matter, it was a no-brainer for the police to decline to pursue the case. However, there were some of them who weren't so quick to believe he was innocent. Much about him perfectly fit the murders they knew about, including choice of weapon and location. Hansen was a hunter who was known to have a Ruger Mini-14 among his many firearms, and a hunting buddy told the police that they often flew out to go hunting near the Kinnick River, not far from where two of the bodies were found. At this point, they had a total of 17 women that they knew were definitely missing and four had been found dead. All but two had vanished from Anchorage while working downtown as a sex worker or dancer. These two that didn't fit the pattern or the victim profile had gone missing from the small fishing town of Seward, Alaska in 1973 and 1975. Megan Emmerich was the first one in the summer of 1973. She was a 17-year-old girl who was in Seward attending a small school. She vanished one day after leaving the dormitory and left all of her belongings behind. There was absolutely no clue as to what might have happened. 
Almost exactly two years later, in 1975, 22-year-old Mary Thill disappeared under similar circumstances. She was a married resident of Seward whose husband was out of town, and she had last been seen outside near a waterfall in the mountains that are a backdrop to the town in the middle of the day. Absolutely no clues to her disappearance were ever found either. Despite the similarities, the police at that time would view these as separate and unrelated incidents. Over the next few months after the incident involving Cindy Paulson, the police had Hansen in mind as a person of interest, but they did not have much to go on. Then, Paula Goulding's body was discovered, and not long after that, another young sex worker named Dalen Fry went missing from downtown Anchorage. Once the police looked into Hansen's background and saw the incidents in the 70s, in which he had raped a sex worker and attempted to adopt another woman, he became their prime suspect. So far, though, the only decent evidence they had were the shells found near the two bodies at the Kinnick River. They needed some way to convince a judge to give them a search warrant for his house. Enter John Douglas. The APD had decided it was now time to get the FBI involved. At this point in time, the Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI had begun working on perfecting the process of offender profiling. One of the most notable profilers of the time, and of all time, was John Douglas, who had previously applied his methods of profiling to other well-known cases, such as the Atlanta child murders in the late 70s. For the last few years, he had been teaching other FBI agents about criminal profiling and had been helping out on various cases when he could. He came up to Alaska to help create a profile of the serial killer that authorities now believed was probably behind many of the missing persons cases. Though the APD had Hansen in mind as a suspect, they wanted the opinion of John Douglas to tell them whether he fit the profile of someone who could kill so many women in such a cold-blooded fashion. Instead of telling him anything about their suspect, they worked backwards and told him the details of the crimes. The profile he came up with for the killer was very similar to Hansen. He described a smaller-than-average guy who might seem mild-mannered on the outside, possibly with some physical characteristic that could have caused him extreme self-esteem and anger issues. He ended his profile stating that the person would probably have some sort of speech impediment. His appearance and speech impediment could be part of the reason that he sought out sex workers for victims because he didn't have to lure them away. He simply had to offer money. He also said that Hansen's love of hunting and weapons fit with the method of murder perfectly. If Hansen felt inadequate and was drawn to big weapons because of that, then he may not have felt physically strong enough to kill a woman in an up-close fight, which could be why he chose to shoot them from a distance. He also needed the rush of having complete control over the situation, which is why he would eventually fly them to the middle of nowhere so they had no chance of escape and might do as told. This could stem from having essentially no control over his life and his youth and having to obey an extremely strict and punitive father. Douglas's profile was almost dead on for Hansen, and this would actually turn out to be the first case in which profiling a suspect was used to help get a search warrant. Douglas thought that Hansen probably viewed his weapon as an extension of himself and would probably not have gotten rid of it. And since Hansen had so many animal heads for trophies, Douglas reasoned he probably would have kept small trophies from the murders that he could easily hide. Now that this was an active investigation zeroing in on Hansen, his alibi witnesses were questioned again, 
Now that they realized how serious the situation was, they both quickly admitted that they had lied for him, thinking they were helping hide something much less serious. When his house was searched, they found jackpot. Hidden underneath some insulation in the attic, they found four guns, including a 223 Ruger Mini-14. And they found multiple items of jewelry, driver's licenses, and other small items from the victims. They could immediately identify one piece of jewelry that had been custom-made for victim Andrea Altieri. Hansen had actually given away some of these trophies to his wife and daughter, but had kept the others hidden away for himself. They also found a pivotal piece of information, a map of Alaska marked with multiple red X's in various locations all over the state. A few of the X's corresponded with the four bodies that had already been found, and they found the items he had previously reported stolen for insurance money. While the guns were being sent off to the FBI lab for ballistics tests, Hansen was charged with assault, kidnapping, weapons charges, insurance fraud, and theft. He was charged November 3rd, 1983, and pled not guilty to all charges. This would hold him in custody long enough to make sure the homicide charges would stick. Because his bail was set at half a million dollars, and his wife had no interest in bailing him out. Ballistics testing conclusively proved that the shells found at the burial sites of Sherry and Paula had been fired from Hansen's Ruger Mini-14. It didn't take long until Hansen decided he would plead guilty to the four murders anyways, where the bodies had been found, including Annie, Joanne Messina, Sherry Morrow, and Paula Golding. He did it so that his wife and children wouldn't be continuously scrutinized by the media during a long trial. He was actually convinced into doing it by his attorney, who told him that even if he did go through the long trial, he would more than likely be convicted because of the mountain of evidence they had against him. On February 18, 1984, he pled guilty to murder for the four bodies that had been found. After this, he signed a plea agreement that he would tell them the details of all of the murders, but would not be charged for any future murders beyond the four. He would also get to serve time in the federal penitentiary. Like Joshua Wade, he was worried about the repercussions he might face from fellow prisoners. His crimes were well known now, and even felons in prison for life don't really take too kindly to those who prey on the young and vulnerable. In his full confession, he told the investigators that he visited the sex workers to gratify his needs because his wife was a good girl that he didn't want to tarnish and that he had taken 30 or 40 of them out to his cabin for sex, then brought them back to Anchorage safely. He explained that he got their compliance by threatening them with a gun as soon as they got in the car, and he told them if they complied with him, they wouldn't be hurt. He said that his first murder was the woman known as Akluna Annie. He had panicked and killed her when she tried to escape from his car, and he had never known her name. In his eyes, these sex workers and dancers were fair game due to being lower life forms than himself. During his time prowling the streets of downtown Anchorage, he was driving a vehicle that has often been associated with other serial killers, a VW Bug. That goofy car combined with his appearance probably made him seem like a safe John. On February 23rd, Hansen flew with investigators in a helicopter to the spots marked on the map so he could show them exactly where he had buried each body. They marked the spot so they could return in summer to dig them up as the ground was too frozen that time of year. 
He showed them 12 different locations in this manner. And on February 27th, he was sentenced to 460 years in prison and was then quickly flown out of state to be interred at a prison in Pennsylvania. At the end of April of that year, it was warm enough to begin looking for the bodies. Within just a few days of beginning the search effort, they recovered the bodies of Sue Luna, Malai Larson, Dalen Fry, Angela Federn, Teresa Watson, and Tamara Peterson. A few weeks later, they found Lisa Futrell, and the last identifiable body they found was Andrea Altieri. After Andrea, they found one more body, but were never able to identify her. She became known as Horseshoe Harriet because she was found near Horseshoe Lake. Many of these bodies were found in the Kinnick area. The bodies of Mary Thill and Megan Emmerich, who had gone missing from Seward, were never found. However, there were two X's on the map over Resurrection Bay out of Seward, and investigators believe they might be there, but they would be irretrievable based on the location being in several hundred feet of water. Hansen had even admitted he had been in Seward on the day of each woman's disappearance, but refused to admit to anything further. Sadly, no progress was ever made on either of these cases. They are still open, but very cold. They also never found the bodies of Roxanne Eastland or Celia Van Zarten. In all actuality, they were actually surprised that they had found so many bodies because the wilderness is full of animals that like to scavenge things. Despite being completely innocent, Robert's wife Darla and their children continued to be harassed by neighbors and classmates. They were essentially ran out of town in 1986. Robert would end up back in Alaska at a correctional facility, ironically in Seward. He lived there from 1988 to 2014, when he was taken to a hospital in Anchorage, where he died at the age of 75. Police had suspected he had killed more than 17 people, but there was no deathbed confessions from him. In the early 2000s, APD appealed to the public to help identify Aklutna Annie. They described her as white with possibly some Native American or Asian heritage, and they also shared photos of jewelry that had been found with the body. Unfortunately, her identity still remains a mystery. They also were never able to identify Horseshoe Harriet. In 2014, her body was exhumed for DNA testing. And as of 2015, it was announced that her DNA was available for comparison and that anybody with a missing family member of her description can submit their own DNA to check for a match. Two years later, a match has not been made, but authorities are hopeful she will be identified someday. In 2012, a film crew spent three weeks in Anchorage making a film based on Robert Hansen. It was called The Frozen Ground. Nicholas Cage, John Cusack, 50 Cent, and Vanessa Hudgens were the big stars in the film. Their crew was able to use part of downtown to completely recreate what the area looked like in the 70s. Vanessa Hudgens played the escaped victim, Cindy Paulson, and she was actually able to consult with the real Cindy Paulson about the role. The crew also used many locals as extras to fill in the packed strip clubs and downtown streets. The result was a mostly mediocre film that is still watchable due to the standout performance from Hudgens as Cindy, Cage as a trooper that's suspicious of Hansen, and Cusack was perfectly cast as Robert Hansen. It's actually eerie. It's worth a watch if you've never seen it. As an epilogue, I'd like to share a story from my dad. 
In the early 80s, he and his friend Dave were out dirt biking, way out in the Kinnick area in a very remote spot. About a mile in the distance, they saw a super cub that was oddly landed right up next to a bunch of trees. My dad suggested going over there to see if there was a problem because it was a really weird place for a small plane to land. My dad's friend Dave, who was a little older and had two tours of NOM under his belt and a healthy dose of paranoia, had a really bad feeling about the situation. He urged my dad to not go over there, even though they could get away on the bikes pretty fast if they had to, and said, yeah, but we can't outrun bullets. They quickly left the area and didn't think about it again until years later, when they saw the map of where Hansen's victims had been. They realized that one of them had been recovered right where they had been dirt biking. It would be impossible to prove it was Hansen they saw that day, but my dad is convinced that it was. And seeing as how this happened a few years before I was born, I guess I have to thank my dad's friend, Dave, because if not for him, I might not even be here today to tell you this story. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I will see you soon and we'll bring you another grim and gory story in just a few days. Good night.